take a look at our Old Testament uh, reading. This is from Exodus chapter 14. And um, it seems like every week we've been reading through Exodus, and every week it's like, oh, we're just right on the edge. We're right on the edge. This is it. And uh, this week, oh, we are right on the edge. And this is the week where the people who had been slaves in Egypt, uh, and though they've come out of Egypt, they have not really been set free from the Egyptians until what we read today, when they finally um, move across. This is Exodus chapter 14, verses 21 through 31. Before we read, let's pray. Heavenly Father, we do thank you for this day that you have made. God, we do thank you for uh, the your word that you have given to us. God, we thank you for the variety of ways that you have revealed yourself to us in nature and in your word, and most of all in Jesus. God, we pray that you would help us to be those who pay attention to all three, now that we would come to know you better, that we would come uh, to walk with you in everything, now that we would be um, good disciples and apprentices of Jesus, learning your way for us. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Exodus chapter 14, starting in verse 21. Then Moses stretched out his hand over the sea, and all that night the Lord drove the sea back with a strong east wind and turned it into dry land. The waters were divided, and the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground, with a wall of water on their right and on their left. The Egyptians pursued them, and all Pharaoh's horses and chariots and horsemen followed them into the sea. During the last watch of the night, the Lord looked down from the pillar of fire and cloud at the Egyptian army and threw it into confusion. He jammed the wheels of their chariots so that they had difficulty driving. And the Egyptians said, let's get away from the Israelites. The Lord is fighting for them against Egypt. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand over the seas that the waters may flow back over the Egyptians and their chariots and horsemen. Moses stretched out his hand over the sea and at daybreak, the sea went back to its place. The Egyptians were fleeing toward it. And the Lord swept them into the sea. The water flowed back and covered the chariots and horsemen, the entire army of Pharaoh that had followed the Israelites into the sea. Not one of them survived. But the Israelites went through the sea on dry ground with a wall of water on their right and on their left. That day, the Lord saved Israel from the hands of the Egyptians, and Israel saw the Egyptians lying dead on the shore. And when the Israelites saw the mighty hand of the Lord displayed against the Egyptians, the people feared the Lord and put their trust in him and in Moses, his servant. Turning then to our, our gospel reading from Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 8. Again, we've been leading up to this for quite some time. Mark 16. When the Sabbath was over, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James and Salome, brought, or bought spices. Excuse me, bought spices so that they might go anoint Jesus' body. Very early on the first day of the week, just after sunrise, they were on their way to the tomb, and they asked each other, "Who will roll the stone away from the entrance of the tomb?" But when they looked up, they saw that the stone, which was very large, had been rolled away. As they entered the tomb, 
they saw a young man dressed in a white robe sitting on the right side, and they were alarmed. Don't be alarmed, he said. You are looking for Jesus, the Nazarene, who was crucified. He has risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter he is going ahead of you into Galilee. There you will see him, just as he told you. Trembling and bewildered, the women went out and fled from the tomb. They said nothing to anyone because they were afraid. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, we have been uh, reading through, or yeah, going through all the way through the book of Revelation this last year. We're starting actually the the last chapter of Revelation today, uh, Revelation chapter 22, looking at verses 1 through 5. And, um, and we have been talking a lot about uh, the dreamlike uh, imagery and language that is used and kind of the dreamlike logic that goes into this book. And if you kind of have that understanding, if you've ever had a dream and then you wake up and you try to explain it to somebody and you're saying, well, it was you, but it wasn't you, or it was my house, but it wasn't my house, or that kind of thing, you understand how dreams sort of work. And the uh, same sort of thing here. And uh, but before we read this, actually, this is Revelation 22. Before we read this, I want to tell you some other things. See, uh, I want to talk this morning about us kind of thinking too small, praying too small. Uh, yesterday, as many of you know, um, it was the day of the uh, funeral for my stepfather, uh, Dale. And he, he, before he was my stepfather, was actually uh, my pastor from the time I was in eighth grade uh, and on through the rest of high school. Anyway, um, and he used to lead an awful lot of mission trips. And one time when I was down in Mexico, there was this uh, missionary that we were working with in this very, very remote village in the middle of the Yucatan Peninsula. And uh, we're there working to, uh, to build, well, we'll get to that. But she was telling me a story. All were there. The reason that she was a missionary, the reason that she was in this town, and that she had actually come to that town, this very, very small village, um, not as a missionary, but as an anthropologist. And she had come as an anthropologist from University of the United States, and she was just there to study the Mayan people. That's what she's there That's for. That's what she's doing. And while she's there, uh, she got you know to know some of the people pretty well. And at one point, um, the mayor of this little village has... Uh, his son is sick. And he's sick with something, I don't even remember what it was, but whatever it was, she's like, if, if he were anywhere close to medical facilities, like this is not a big deal, but out here, it's so remote. And they have no way to get to anywhere. He likely will die from this. And so she is distressed, and you know the mayor is distressed, but she's like... I, I can't do anything. As an anthropologist, I'm here to study the people. I'm not here to intervene. And so uh, she's thinking, well, I guess I could pray. That I can do. (laughs) So she says she goes to her hut that night, and she gets into her hammock, (laughs) and she just is praying to God for the mayor's son and for his son. But she says, you know, the thing I was praying for is, God, you can do all things— you could bring a box of medicine. If we just had a box of medicine in this village, his life would be saved. That's all we need. 
And so she was praying, God, if you, will, if you will bring a box of medicine to this village in time to save his life, then I will know that you are real and I will uh, know that you, know, you were able to do all these things and, and I will give you the rest of my life. I will come back, you know, I will stay here. I'll go quit my job as an anthropologist. I will become a missionary. Well, you know what happened, right? Because I started the story by telling you I met a missionary in that town. (laughs) But actually, it's not exactly what you're expecting. Because she went to uh, sleep that night praying for a box of medicine. And the next morning, she woke up with some people knocking on the door of her hut. And she goes and answers the door. And it was my stepfather, back before (laughs) he was that, and a team of doctors <laughs> in a van full of medical supplies who had been doing a medical mission trip nearby and they had lost their way. <laughs> and someone had told them that there was an American nearby and if they go and knock on this hut, maybe she could tell them where to go. <laughs> so she goes to sleep at night praying, "If God, if you could just bring a box of medicine. And she wakes up in the morning to a team of doctors, pastor, <laughs> and a whole van full of medicine. The boy's life was saved, and uh, that actually started a relationship. Not only did she go back and quit her job and become a missionary to this small village, but it started a series of mission trips from multiple churches to this area where they ended up building a medical clinic that served that entire remote area with doctors and pharmacists and dentists and all kinds of services. They... um, it was an amazing thing. This is my example, though. This has been on mine lately, but this is my example of how we tend to think really small. <laughs> um, and there's nothing wrong with that because God also cares about what we care about. And sometimes the things that we care about are, you know, kind of small things in the grand scheme of things. And that's okay. <laughs> but it's really neat to see the way in which God answers our prayers sometimes not at all um, in the limited way that we are thinking or in the limited way that we are asking. There is a verse in Ephesians where Paul is praying for uh, the church in Ephesus, and he ends it this way in uh, the end of Ephesians chapter 3. He says, Now to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine according to his power that is at work within us to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Isn't that great? You hear how he describes God to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine. That's fantastic. And, um, and so this is where, you know, we, you see this all over the place. You see the, um, the woman at the well in John chapter 4. Lord, give me some of this water. It's like, oh, living water, right? This will go on forever. You see this with the man at the pool in John 5, where all he wants is just someone to help him get into the water. He can't move. Somebody always gets there first. And Jesus is like, how about instead of that, we heal you. Get it, take up your mat and go home. Then there's, uh, in Mark chapter 2, you have the paralyzed man that people are bringing to Jesus. And of course, what they're thinking is, yeah, physical healing, right? Like some other people are getting, that's what we want. And Jesus looks at him and says, son, your sins are forgiven. 
so much bigger. And of course, he heals his body as well. But that is even a sign of the greater thing, which is his sins being forgiven. And so I want us to think about this because when we're thinking about resurrection, we think about the resurrection of Jesus. And sometimes we think it's just about the resurrection of Jesus, but, but often we connect it to something bigger. We connect it to our own resurrection. I preached on that this morning at the uh, Minister Alliance sunrise service, how it was um, said Peter in Acts chapter 2 is quoting David and talks about how it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. It was impossible. And so we talk about the, uh, the good news of that. And so we connect it to our own resurrection, but it's actually even that. It's still too small for what's really going on. This is um, in Revelation. Nope, nope, not, not going to Revelation yet. Romans. In Romans chapter 8, starting in verse 18, Paul says, I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed in us. For the creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be liberated from its bondage to decay and brought into the freedom and glory of the children of God. And he goes on and continue to talk about the whole of the creation. And you look at this in, um, you go back to Genesis chapter three, and this is part of the problem. You have this breakdown that comes with sin between the relationship between people and God, but between people and each other and even people and all creation. It's broken down. Oh, you're going to keep working the soil, but it's not going to produce like it used to produce. <laughs> there is a breakdown even in our relationship with all the creation. And now in, uh, in Romans, it says this is what the whole creation has been waiting for, that this curse would be undone that it would be gone. And so when we get to Revelation 22, this is the vision that John gets, is of this resurrected creation. So not just the resurrection of Jesus, but the resurrection of Jesus that leads to not only our resurrection, but the resurrection of all of creation. Here's how he writes this. This is Revelation chapter 22, verses 1 through 5. It says, Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, as clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street of the city. On the side of the river stood the tree of on each side of the river stood the tree of life bearing twelve crops of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. And the leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be any curse. The throne of God and of the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will serve him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. There will be no more night. They will not need the light of a lamp or the light of the sun, for the Lord God will give them light, and they will reign forever and ever. This is how uh, this resurrected creation is depicted, with language that echoes back through the entire rest of the Bible. This is a restored creation that hinges on the resurrection of Jesus. And as it describes, I say it goes all the way back through um, all of the Bible. You're going back to things like the tree of life, which stood in the Garden of Eden. This is what people had access to until 
Sin cut them off from God. And this was the um, part of the problem, is you can't have people now in a broken relationship with God living forever in that brokenness. Somehow that has to be healed. And what we have here is this vision of this restored relationship between God and his people, between people and each other, and now between people and all creation. And so now you have a situation where there is no more curse. And so now, once again, you have people who have access to the tree of life, life forever and life with God. I don't know if you noticed this, but it says that the throne of God and of the lamb will be in the city that God and his people will be together. This is one of the things we've been looking at week after week, that uh, this is what it's all been about from the beginning. This is what Jesus came to restore. And it says here, uh, verse 4, that they will see his face. You remember what what used to be the case? (laughs) You read through the old, no one can see the face of God and not what? Die, right? What's it say here? They say they're going to see his face and then die? No. No, because the, that separation has been overcome. The problem of sin has been dealt with. The curse is no more. Now we have people, as they were always made to be, in right relationship with God and with each other and with the creation. We have people who have been raised to a new life in this new creation where we can, we can see the face of God dwelling with him and not die and no more fear of death. No more fear of any other threat. This is the whole thing about uh, there's not going to be any more night. I don't know if you were raised with the expression nothing good ever happens after midnight, but I was. (laughs) And it's because when the sun goes down, it's easier for people to hide and to do things that they wouldn't want people to see them do. Well, here it says, there's not going to be any more night. There's not going to be any need to lock the doors at night. No one's breaking in. Nothing is happening like that ever again. It's the Lord God who's giving them light. And then it says, and they will reign forever and ever. This is, again, a picture of this uh, resurrected creation This is what people were supposed to do from the beginning, to rule over the earth. This is uh, going back all the way to Genesis 1. People were created in the image of God. And in chapter 2, we see that this is what they're supposed to, well, in chapter 1 and 2, that this is what they're supposed to do is to rule over his creation. And you get all these problems in the way in which people rule ever since. (laughs) And that is the sound effect of all humanity. <laughs> As we look at the leaders of whatever kind of system of government we have throughout the world and throughout history, and it's all brokenness, and it all, as well as anyone ever does, it always falls short, and there's always pain and suffering that comes as a result. But that's not the way it's supposed to be. And here, we have a... <laughs> bye-bye. <laughs> You don't have to go. (laughs) (laughs) One day, there will be no more tears. (laughs) 
Because even the pain of, uh, of poor leadership, of, broken, of being led by broken leaders, will be gone. That one day we will reign like we're supposed to in uh, truth and justice and righteousness for real. So when we look at this vision of this resurrection of all creation, you know, this is what I'm saying. We think too small when we forget that. We think too small when we're thinking about just our day-to-day or even our own resurrection. The thing is, we fit into this bigger story. That the resurrection of Jesus is what points us to this bigger story, and this is what we're supposed to be uh, remembering and longing for and looking forward to along with all of creation. Looking forward to the day when there is no more curse. When, I suppose, we will still work the ground, but it will flourish. Won't that be nice? We tend to think too small. I heard a sermon recently where they, uh, the preacher was citing a statistic in a, a poll that uh, said that in the United States, 76% of people uh, identify as Christians. But then as they look deeper and uh, there have been lots of polls where they um, survey, you know, trying to figure out, but who is actually living like as an apprentice of Jesus, learning to live like he lives, in relationship with him, walking with him, learning from him, putting into practice the things that he taught. And they said that number comes in a little bit lower. So instead of 76%, it is around 8%. That's a pretty big difference, isn't it? And I suspect that one of the reasons why is because we think too small. We think in terms of, hey, I prayed a prayer. I've I've got life coming. I'm good. And we stop at that. And we miss out on what Jesus called, where he said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. That there is a relationship with God that is turning us into the kind of people who can have this relationship with him now and on into forever. And it is, um, it is this learning to live with Jesus that we miss out on when we're thinking too small. And so as we think about... Um, as we think about the resurrection of Jesus and we celebrate that today, don't forget the resurrection of all of creation. And don't forget that there is uh, a lot more in store than just um, not having to pay for our own sins. That's a very good thing. But that's just the very beginning. And so now, to him who is able to do immeasurably more than all we ask or imagine, according to his power that is at work within us, to him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations, forever and ever. Amen.